Welcome to the Medicine Grand Rounders podcast. My name is Dick Wardrop, and I'm a MedPeds clinician educator, program director, and hospitalist at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. We are so proud to host our second episode of our podcast, cleverly titled, to give you all that you may expect out of a high-quality, evidence-based Medicine Grand Rounds, right at your fingertips and right in your ears. Our program is funded by a grant from the Cleveland Clinic Education Institute, but the views expressed herein are not necessarily the views of the Cleveland Clinic. The format of our production is very simple. We host world-class clinical experts in a variety of specialties of internal medicine and put forth important and high-impact clinical questions related to the practice of general medicine with impact for providers at all levels in medicine, including students, APPs, generalists, and seasoned veterans. Without further ado, I am proud to introduce Dr. Scott Gabbard, staff at Cleveland Clinic in Gastroenterology and Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Cleveland Clinic Learner College of Medicine and Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. He is also section head of the Neurogastroenterology Center at Cleveland Clinic. Having trained with you, Dr. Gabbard, it is so good to be working with you again. We are also happy to have our resident expert, Dr. Arjun Chatterjee, we are also happy to have our resident expert, Dr. Arjun Chatterjee, one of our fabulous PGY3 residents at the Cleveland Clinic Internal Medicine Residency Program. To our honored guests, please take a moment to say hi, tell us about yourselves, and start right in on the questions. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Wardrop, Dr. Chatterjee, for this uh, fantastic opportunity. It's, it's an honor to be here. Um, and, uh, uh, Dick, you know, uh, I've, I've known you for almost 20 years. Uh, uh, Dr. Wardrop was actually my, uh, chief resident when I was an intern, uh, back at the university of North Carolina. So thank you for letting me pass my intern year and, uh, eventually make my way, uh, up to Cleveland clinic. So, so I really appreciate, uh, I appreciate it. We've both come a long way and, uh, it's an honor to be here today with both of you. Uh, thank you, Dr. Wardrow, for introducing me. Uh, uh, I'm a third-year internal medicine resident at the Cleveland Clinic IM program. I'm interested in gastroenterology and hepatology and have uh, applied for GI uh, past month. I have worked with Dr. Gabbard in clinic before, and once I came to learn about functional dyspepsia, I realized how often it's misdiagnosed, and then I wanted to create an, a podcast about functional dyspepsia and kind of... Uh, unveil uh, this entity which is often misdiagnosed and misrepresented since we don't uh, as, a, as an IM resident we don't get enough exposure to this uh, in the inpatient side. Thank you. Um, so with that I, I'll take the uh, privilege of asking the first question and you know I can remember back to my own uh, time in clinic um, at University of North Carolina and seeing these diagnostic lists and, and things that you know problem lists and I remember coming across my first patient with functional dyspepsia. And I have to tell you, I did not really understand what that was. So I guess my first and basic question for those that have not embraced this topic before, Dr. Gabbard, what is functional dyspepsia? Yeah, fantastic question. So we've all seen this in clinic. And, you know, um, many times patients will have been presenting with dys uh, symptoms of functional dyspepsia for years and not uh, be diagnosed properly or be diagnosed with something uh, different than functional dyspepsia. So really, when we talk about functional dyspepsia, 
we're talking about uh, a location and a set of symptoms. So the location for these symptoms would generally be sort of the center of the upper abdomen, sort of the epigastric area. And, you know, functional dyspepsia, there's really two major subtypes. There's a subtype um, called postprandial distress syndrome. That's more of the bloating or epigastric fullness that comes on after a meal or patients have early satiety. They fill up quickly with meals. So again, you've got sort of one side of functional dyspepsia that's the bloating, fullness, satiety. And then on the other side, there's a there's another um, distinct subtype of functional dyspepsia, and that's more the pain-predominant type. That's called epigastric pain syndrome. And that's more um, epigastric burning or epigastric stabbing pain. Those are the patients who, you know, for whatever reason, you know, are, are often, you know, sort of thought, you know, by their providers, oh, you must have an ulcer causing this burning. Um, but then they have an upper endoscopy or, you know, unfortunately, many have multiple upper endoscopies over the years and they keep being totally normal or showing very minimal amounts of, of, you know, irritation, which essentially everyone has a little bit of, you know, mild gastritis in the stomach. Um, but those patients with epigastric pain syndrome are, are those that really, you know, are thought to have an ulcer, but then get a scope or many scopes and, and there's really nothing on endoscopy to explain it. So again, there's the bloating subtype and the epigastric pain subtype. Functional dyspepsia is incredibly common, you know, um, studies have suggested that, you know, up to 30% of the worldwide population has functional dyspepsia. I, I would, um, I would be willing to bet that if you went into Dr. Chatterjee's, uh, uh, medicine clinic that, uh, you know, you're probably looking at 80% of patients meeting criteria for functional dyspepsia or really any resident or, or, um, gastroenterology clinic. It is incredibly common. Uh, that's a perfect segue to me presenting a case, uh, something which I had recently seen in uh, the gastroenterology clinic. So a 37-year-old female presented with over 10 years of epigastric fullness and bloating with meals. She denied heartburn or regurgitation, dysphagia, and did not have any weight loss. The last uh, EGD was performed five years back, which showed normal endoscopic appearance of the esophagus, stomach, and duodenum. Biopsies of the gastric antrum and bodies were taken, which came back negative for H. pylori, and biopsies of the duodenum were also normal. She had already tried two different proton pump inhibitors, but without any real improvements in her symptoms. So we are going to go back to this case later uh, in the podcast. But before that, I wanted to ask you, Dr. Cabard, what's the pathophysiology of functional dyspepsia? Yeah, it's a great question. And uh, you know, Dr. Chatterjee, it's a fantastic case. I mean, it sounds like sort of uh, people were diagnosing her as having GERD. They keep putting, you know, this patient on uh, PPIs, right? And PPIs aren't helping her symptoms. PPIs are amazing for heartburn, but uh, not so good for bloating and fullness. So I think this case, you know, that, that you just presented is going to be a fantastic sort of thing to come back to you know, uh, obviously today's topic is functional dyspepsia. The patient has functional dyspepsia, but all too often I see these patients who are diagnosed as GERD for years 
really they have dyspepsia. So um, thank you for presenting that case. Um, and then in terms of your question, you know, what is the pathophysiology? So, you know, uh, one, functional dyspepsia is a functional gastrointestinal disorder. And the nomenclature is changing. So, you know, we're in GI starting to call this, you know, a disorder of gut-brain interaction, you know, but these have been, you know, called um, gut-brain interaction disorders or functional disorders. And really, when we think about functional gastrointestinal disorders, all functional GI disorders from irritable bowel syndrome to functional heartburn, we're really thinking about, um, you know, disorders of the nerves of the GI tract, the enteric nervous system. I think, you know, these are clearly associated with hypersensitivity of the visceral nerves. There can be problems with motility as well. But but in my mind, I, I sort of first and foremost say these are nerve disorders. Um, so a few of the potential sort of etiologies of functional dyspepsia. So you can get abnormal gastric emptying. And, you know, uh, all too commonly, a patient will present with bloating or fullness without nausea and vomiting, and immediately someone says, oh, they must have gastroparesis. And it's true, a subset of functional dyspepsia patients have delayed gastric emptying and without pure vomiting, you know, and, and I think that is in the spectrum of functional dyspepsia, sort of in the spectrum of functional dyspepsia and gastroparesis. However... Um, actually, our department has shown that many patients with functional dyspepsia actually have the opposite side of the spectrum. So they may have rapid gastric emptying. So when their stomach empties too fast, you see these gastric emptying scans that are read as normal. But then when you look, you know, the patient emptied 75% of a meal at one hour. That's clearly abnormal. When you eat a meal, um, which, you know, Dr. Wardrop and I, you know, I, at least I lived on, you know, biscuits and gravy and, and fried chicken when I was in North Carolina, they even sold it in the hospital. It was fantastic. You know, when we would eat a meal, the food should sit in the fundus in the top part of your stomach for an hour and just sit there. The fundus should expand and accommodate. So when you eat a meal or when a patient eats a meal and they get full and bloated 10 minutes after a meal. In my mind, I think of that as a disruption of fundic accommodation. The top part of the stomach, the fundus, is not relaxing. So that's a very important aspect of functional dyspepsia, especially that postprandial distress subtype. Obviously, I mentioned hypersensitivity of the visceral nerves. You know, there are people who you know who have, quote unquote, a cast iron stomach, right? They can eat the hottest peppers in the world. They can eat anything and they don't complain. Well, they have hyposensitive nerves, right? Their nerves don't really send much signal. That's why they can tolerate so much. Then you have the patients who, if they get one little dash of pepper, they get severe pain. Oh, you know, that doesn't agree with me. Those patients have hypersensitivity, right? What's the difference between the person who can eat spicy, um, you know, food and the person who can like not tolerate any spice? Well, it's a nerve sensitivity problem. One has dull nerves. One has overly sensitive nerves. Um, H. pylori infection. You know, some um, some estimates put H. pylori as high as 25% um, 
prevalent in parts of the U.S. So H. pylori may play a role, but as we'll get to later on, may doesn't explain everything. Even in patients who you find H. pylori who have functional dyspepsia, eradicating functional dyspepsia doesn't always guarantee that their dyspeptic symptoms will get better. But H. pylori certainly plays a role. And then there are some known environmental factors. Um, you know, some things, you know, stressors, food allergies, um, you know, smoking may um, may have some sort of uh, association with dyspepsia. So it's a multifactorial process. And very often in our patients, we'll find that there's multiple sort of explanations or multiple potential etiologies for their dyspeptic symptoms. That's a great um, transition into a question that I've that I've always sort of had as a non-GI specialist. How would someone like in a resident clinic or a generalist or maybe even someone in a family, how would you go about diagnosing or, or suggesting the diagnosis of functional dyspepsia given our use of tests and uh, imaging and uh, endoscopy? Yeah, so, you know, it, it's a great question. And I would say that right now there isn't a particular test, you know, so there's no blood test. You know, there's no upper endoscopy. There's no CAT scan that will give you a diagnosis of functional dyspepsia. Really, we, we diagnose this based on criteria, and the criteria are from the Rome Foundation. Now, uh, when Dick and I were residents back um, in the early days of the Rome Foundation, they really used this Rome Foundation for, for motility and functional disorders sort of more as a research tool. And uh, to the credit of the Rome Foundation, over the past like iteration of the Rome criteria, they have made it much more clinically applicable. So it's you can much better apply this to clinical practice, both for diagnosis and the Rome um, papers have a, a wonderful section on treatment options for um, for each functional disorder. But right now in 2023, most experts would use the Rome four criteria for diagnosing functional dyspepsia, and essentially what those criteria are. You know, patients have to present with dyspeptic symptoms, you know, be it postprandial fullness, epigastric burning, epigastric pain, or early satiety. And again, I mentioned there are two subtypes, right? I like to think about it as the bloaters and the burners, right? So the bloaters, right, that subtype is postprandial distress syndrome. And those patients really have to have postprandial fullness um, or early satiety affecting their daily activities, affecting their ability to eat a meal at least three days per week. The other sort of side of the spectrum, the other subtype, epigastric pain syndrome, that the diagnostic criteria is you must have epigastric pain or burning affecting your daily activity at least one day a week. For both um, subtypes, there really should be no sign of a sort of a, an organic or structural problem. Uh, which could, you know, explain these symptoms. And the patients must have had symptoms for six months, um, meeting these diagnostic criteria for three. 
Um, there is the question, do all patients require an upper endoscopy to diagnose functional dyspepsia? And the answer is no. Patients do not require an upper endoscopy to diagnose functional dyspepsia. You know, there are guidelines for this. The American College of Gastroenterology guidelines actually recommend against performing an upper endoscopy to patients under the age of 55 for functional dyspepsia because the yield is so low. It's very, very unlikely to diagnose something like gastric cancer in a patient under the age of 55. So at least based on the American College of Gastroenterology guidelines, it is not required to perform an upper endoscopy for the diagnosis of functional dyspepsia. For example, you could argue, well, I want to test the patient for H. pylori. And that's very reasonable. That's part of the guidelines for you know uh, treatment for functional dyspepsia. I think all patients should be tested for H. pylori, but there are non-invasive tests for H. pylori. Um, you can do a stool test, which has a sensitivity and specificity above 95% when a patient is off of PPI for at least a week. There's a breath test um, that's also very high sensitivity and specificity. So you do not need to do uh, an upper endoscopy for the purposes of diagnosing functional dyspepsia. So, so at the end of you know this, you know, uh, discussing you know diagnosing functional dyspepsia, I I think I would you know make a recommendation to to really all the trainees or or you know my fellow internists, you know uh, at least what I do is you know in my notes and when I'm discussing to patients I'll say, you meet the criteria for uh, functional dyspepsia. You meet the Rome four criteria for functional dyspepsia. And, you know, in my practice, and, and again, I would encourage everyone to do this. You know, it takes two seconds. I actually print the Rome four papers for, for functional dyspepsia or functional heartburn or IBS. And I will give it to the patient right then and there in clinic, show them the diagnostic criteria and say, you fit the criteria for functional dyspepsia. You know, this isn't a trash can diagnosis. There's clear criteria. You fit the criteria. And then in my note, you know, I'll always write patient meets Rome 4 criteria for functional dyspepsia. And, and so I would encourage all the trainees, all, all my fellow internists, you know, if you're, if you're, you know, thinking about diagnosing functional dyspepsia, like, you know, make the diagnosis, say you meet the criteria, you know, I've given you the diagnosis of functional dyspepsia. Once you give the patient a diagnosis and you explain to them what functional dyspepsia is, um, you know, like I said, this is a nerve problem. And there's a fantastic picture, uh, just as an aside, New England Journal of Medicine article from 2015 on functional dyspepsia. The two authors were Nick Talley and Alex Ford has one of my favorite pictures in the world of functional dyspepsia. It's It's a diagram. This sort of shows, you know, a, a cross section, a, a microscopic section of the of the stomach wall, and it shows sort of the cascade of effects that can cause overly sensitive nerves in the stomach. And once you tell a patient, "Hey, I've diagnosed you with functional dyspepsia. This is a nerve disorder of the stomach and duodenum," and you show them a picture that you know shows this cascade, shows the nerves firing. 
once patients get that, I mean, that right there is therapeutic. You've given them a diagnosis, then you can move forward with sort of discussing prognosis and, and treatment options for functional dyspepsia. Thank you for that. Thank you, Dr. Gabbard, for that uh, fantastic explanation on how to diagnose functional dyspepsia. Let's say I followed the Rome 4 criteria, diagnose someone with functional dyspepsia, and how, what do I tell them about prognosis of this disease? Yeah, it's a really, it's a great question, you know, and, and I think, you know, uh, a lot of our um, uh, discussion of, of these functional disorders centers around a few things. Number one is, you know, discussing with a patient does this put you at increased risk for cancer or, or death? And the answer is no. So patients with functional dyspepsia do not have an increased risk of gastric cancer, pancreatic cancer, any sort of GI cancers compared to the general population. Two, functional dyspepsia does not affect survival long-term. In fact, there may be some data to suggest that some functional GI disorders, if anything, the patients with functional GI disorders trend to have better survival than the general population. Um, but at the very least, we know that this does not affect long-term survival. So what is the prognosis of functional dyspepsia? Well, again, functional dyspepsia really boils down to being a nerve disorder. Um, I think other functional GI disorders, such as IBS, Long-term studies have found that up to a third to 40% of patients with functional disorders such as IBS will have spontaneous resolution at some point, you know, over the next five to 10 years. So a, a, a subset of patients may actually have spontaneous resolution of functional dyspepsia at five to 10 years. Right now, we have no way to predict who's going to have spontaneous resolution, but there is a chance that it could go away on its own. Of course, that means that, you know, 60 to 70% of patients with functional dyspepsia would have a lifelong sort of condition that can wax and wane. And at least in 2023, we don't have a, a way to predict sort of, you know, how the disease is going to progress if, if a patient's going to have spontaneous resolution or not. And we, we certainly don't have a way to cure functional dyspepsia with the caveat that if the functional dyspepsia is due to H. pylori, we can eradicate the H. pylori. Um, but aside from that, we don't have a way yet to cure functional dyspepsia, but we do have therapies that are incredibly effective and really life-changing for, for many of my patients. That's fantastic. I think one of the uh, last questions would be what what do we how do we manage functional dyspepsia and what treatment options are out there? Yeah. So number one, I, I have to tell everyone listening, you know, and I tell my patients this, there is no FDA approved therapy for functional dyspepsia. So everything that we have for functional dyspepsia is off label. Um that said, there are many therapies that are safe relatively affordable and very effective for the treatment of functional dyspepsia, but everything is uh, off-label. So make sure you tell your patients that. So I think that um, certainly like the patients in our um, case discussion, I think most 
um, patients get started on an anti-secretory agent like a proton pump inhibitor or an H2 blocker. And I think uh, I'll start with the H2 blockers, right? Right now in the U.S., I think we only have famotidine available. Um, and H2 blockers, the major limitation uh, with H2 blockers is the phenomenon of tachyphylaxis, meaning it stops working after a week or two. The wonderful study um, from the early 2000s in Japan that essentially showed that within two weeks, of using famotidine or ranitidine on a daily basis, patients developed tachyphylaxis and gastric acid levels went right back up to baseline at two weeks. So I think, you know, certainly for intermittent GERD symptoms, like, hey, if, you know, Friday night is pizza and beer night and, you know, you always get heartburn, uh, you know, after eating pizza and, and uh, having a beer, like take famotidine that day. But if you have chronic, you know, certainly chronic GERD symptoms or chronic dyspeptic symptoms, H2 blockers are going to be limited by tachyphylaxis. Proton pump inhibitors do help. And really, they help more the patients who have overlapping GERDs. You know, so GERD to me is more heartburn, so burning in your chest or sort of that acid regurgitation, that, that sort of sensation of acid coming up through the chest into the throat or mouth. Uh, PPIs work amazingly well for the those typical GERD symptoms. And if a patient has overlapping dyspepsia, especially that pain-predominant dyspepsia, say epigastric burning combined with heartburn or acid regurgitation, PPIs work very well. And certainly, you know, it's reasonable to, you know, do a two to three month trial of a PPI. And if the patient responds, just like in GERD, try to taper them to the lowest dose or have them used intermittently if able. Um, but for many patients, PPIs don't help the um, either the epigastric pain symptoms, and especially PPIs um, are somewhat unlikely to help more of the bloating or early satiety. So many patients, by the time they've made it to our clinics, have already been tried um, on PPIs and, and have failed. So beyond PPIs or, or H2 blockers, you know, um, the major sort of category of medications would be what we call neuromodulators. And, um, you know, these are, are medications, often they're um, antidepressants or uh, anti-anxiety medicines, um, or they can be sort of more pain-related uh, medicines and really, um, when I tell patients, you know, if I'm starting an antidepressant or, or an anti-anxiety medicine, which I'll get to in a second, you know, I, I think, you know, first and foremost, I tell patients, you know, I'm not giving this to you because you're depressed. I'm not telling you that your dyspepsia is from depression or from your anxiety. And I'm certainly not telling you you're crazy. What I'm doing is I'm giving you an antidepressant or an anti-anxiety medicine for the effects on the nerves in the GI tract. We all know that, you know, the major neurochemical involved in anxiety or depression is uh, serotonin. And people forget, um, at least I did until, you know, until I got back into gastroenterology, that 95% of the body's serotonin is manufactured in the enterochromaffin cells of the gut. And so medicines that modulate serotonin 
and other neurochemicals uh, um, actually have major effects on the nerves and the sensory function of the GI tract. So I think that um, now based on the guidelines, you know, very clearly the one medicine that's, that's sort of universally recommended for use in functional dyspepsia would be tricyclic antidepressants like a, a low dose of amitriptyline. And the largest study to date in the U.S. was the National Institute of Health Functional Dyspepsia Treatment Trial, where they actually evaluated uh, tricyclic antidepressants, amitriptyline, versus an SSRI. Um, I think it was escitalopram. And they actually found that uh, amitriptyline was superior to uh, escitalopram and placebo for functional dyspepsia. They started at a very low dose. uh, The NIH study, they started at 25 milligrams, increased the dose to 50. In my own practice, I actually have found that patients get, you know, side effects, um, you know, at at that uh, level. Um, A lot of these patients with functional dyspepsia are hypersensitive to medications. You know, uh, I'm sure in your clinics, you see patients with 16 allergies to medicines. I just scoped a, a wonderfully nice patient today who has 16 allergies. So clearly they are very sensitive to medications. So, uh, you know, I start with 10 milligrams of amitriptyline and increase the dose by 10 milligrams uh, every two weeks. Um, but amitriptyline really helps the subset of patients more with the epigastric pain or burning. It doesn't work as well for bloating. In my practice, the patients who have bloating, you know, fullness, bloating, early satiety, you know, I eat a meal and I can only eat half a sandwich because it gets so full and bloated. Actually, the best medicine for that is buspirone, which is another anxiety medication. Buspirone works by serotonin. It's actually a a 5-HT1A agonist. And interestingly, in a study from Belgium, they found that Buspirone administration actually led to uh, augmentation of nitric oxide release in the stomach. Nitric oxide relaxes smooth muscle, right? The GI tract is made up of smooth muscle. So buspirone actually um, augmented nitric oxide release in the stomach and helps that fullness, that bloating, that discomfort by relaxing the fundus. So um, in those patients, I'll use buspirone 10 milligrams about a half an hour before meals. Um, There's a subset of patients with functional dyspepsia who have um, nutrition problems, like they lost weight, they can't keep their weight up. Um, And in those patients, I will often use mirtazapine, another um, serotonin uh, acting agent. And mirtazapine actually in a nice study was shown to help not only bloating and fullness, but it actually helped patients regain weight and improve sort of nutrition markers. So those patients who've really had poor nutrition, weight loss, I think mirtazapine is a wonderful option. I will start with 15 milligrams at night and increase if needed. Um, there are a couple other things that have been studied, you know, in more open label trials. Some um Neuromodulating agents like gabapentin or pregabalin have been shown to help with, um, you know, more sort of the epigastric pain, burning. Sometimes they can help with postprandial fullness. Um, so, so those are options. But I would say, you know, first line in a patient who needs 
pharmacologic therapy, epigastric pain, you know, a low-dose tricyclic, epigastric fullness, bloating, um, beast before meals. Uh, many patients um, either don't tolerate those medicines, don't want to be on those medicines, um, you know, uh, unfortunately, even with discussing, you know, their benefits. And many patients sort of want more uh, complementary uh, or alternative therapies. And there are a couple, um, you know, uh, alternative therapies or, or herbal um, supplements that have actually um, decent randomized uh, controlled trial data for their use. One in particular is um, a German preparation called STW5, and it's um, nine different herbs. The only ones I can ever remember is peppermint, caraway, clown's mustard seed, bitter candy tuft. Um, but that was shown actually in a, in a nice um, randomized controlled trial to help with um, dyspeptic symptoms, both on the epigastric pain and the bloating side. So it's 20 drops before meals, the STW5. There's a U.S. preparation that's um, pills that are um, contain caraway and um, peppermint, essentially menthol, and they release in the stomach. And those have been shown to help with um, epigastric pain and bloating. Um, one real interesting thing is um, capsaicin. It's almost like using Bengay for your stomach. Um, so you can actually purchase red pepper capsules and um, 500 milligrams before breakfast, 1,000 milligrams before lunch and dinner actually does help with um, epigastric burning. Just like if you were to put Bengay uh, or Icy Hot on your muscles, it does cause burning for a day or two. And then sort of, you know, it, it essentially dulls the nerves thereafter. And so uh, that can help. And then lastly, we have sort of the edge of an, uh, adjunctive therapies. Um, hypnotherapy and behavioral therapies are incredibly, incredibly um, helpful for all functional GI conditions. Here at the Cleveland Clinic, we're lucky to, enough in our department to have multiple behavioral therapists to offer a wide uh, range of behavioral therapies and hypnotherapy. And and I have to say that um, if it was more widely available and, and, and certainly widely covered, it's an amazing option. Um, so I'll use it for patients who are resistant to medications um, or unable to tolerate medications. And then acupuncture. Acupuncture has been shown. There are different acupoints that have been shown to help with um, functional dyspepsia. Uh, the major limitation there is cost because often insurance will not cover acupuncture. So that's an out-of-pocket cost for our patients, but, but it is very helpful. Thank you so much for covering all the different treatment modalities. I would now uh, want to go back to the case now that we have discussed uh, the diagnosis and prognosis and management. So we started this show with uh, our 37-year-old female who presented with more than 10 years of epigastric fullness and bloating. Those bloating with meals, those were her two main complaints. No weight loss, heartburn, or regurgitation. Her, her EGT was negative, no H. pylori. We ended up diagnosing her with functional dyspepsia, the postprandial distress subtype, and then educated her on uh, the disease entity that's functional dyspepsia. The Great. patient was... Yes, that's, yes, that, done. right. You showed her that picture, that any gym, mm -hmm. like the, the New England Journal, right? Picture, very good. Mm -hmm. Good job with Wait. 
Yeah, I think like uh, the the patients like understanding what's going on uh, uh, is a great segue into the medications because most of these medications are often used as like antidepressant uh, antidepressants or like for mood disorders. So uh, we decided to start her on a buspirone 10 milligrams given that we diagnosed her with the postprandial distress subtype before meals with a significant improvement in her postprandial bloating. We had followed her back in clinics and then uh, we also plan to continue the therapy for uh, almost a year and then reassess her for the need for buspirone. Any parting comments, Dr. Uh, Gabbard? Uh, that's absolutely fantastic. And you know, I'll tell you, you know, in, in my practice, uh, so often, you know, I, I will see a patient and, you know, they've been diagnosed, you know, as having GERD for years, been on multiple PPIs and, and really in, in truth, they have functional dyspepsia. And so, and so even making the correct diagnosis is very reassuring to them. Uh, another very common occurrence in my clinic, you know, I'll see patients who come from, uh, you know, five States away, you know, and, and I'll read their doctor's notes. And the doctor will, you know, say, you know, abdominal pain, start amitriptyline. And any of the patient will come to my office and, and, you know, he or she'll say, yeah, my doctor put me on an antidepressant, but I didn't take that, that stuff. I, I'm not depressed. And, you know, I, I sort of in my mind think, well, the, the, the physician must have diagnosed functional dyspepsia because they're, you know, starting the patient on amitriptyline, but the patient has no idea patient has no idea what his or her diagnosis is. So uh, not uncommon for me to spend my visit, one, giving the patient the diagnosis that, you know, his or her local provider probably made, educating the patient, right? Showing them the New England Journal of Medicine article, printing out the room papers, saying you have functional dyspepsia. This is the medicine, you know, this is the this is the treatment. This is why we treat it. You're not depressed. You're not crazy. We're modulating the nerves. We're modulating serotonin, and the patient will leave incredibly happy. And I have not started any new medications that his or her local provider didn't already start. Just explaining why we're doing it was enough to get the patient benefit. So, so I think you know my parting comments are number one, you know. If a patient is, you know, uh, recognize dyspepsia, dyspepsia is different from GERD. So, you know, when you see your patients in clinic and they have pain in the upper abdomen, if they have bloating, you know, uh, present the patient as the patient has dyspepsia. The patient has, you know, postprandial uh, satiety, postprandial bloating, the patient has epigastric pain. Don't just say, oh, the patient has GERD and, you know, is on Nexi or is on esomeprazole eight times a day, you know. Make the diagnosis of functional dyspepsia. You know, think about the subtypes. Is it is it more epigastric pain? Is it more epigastric bloating? Because that way you can really tailor, you know, your therapies to this. Educate your patients, and and just like this uh, patient, you're going to make a lot of your patients much better just by doing those, you know, relatively simple things. So, uh, you know, hopefully, this uh, podcast will, you know, increase. You know, awareness of functional dyspepsia is very treatable and, um, you know, you'd be doing your patients a, a huge service to sort of uh, uh, address it, educate them and, and get them on the right treatments. Well, I guess this leads us to the end of the episode of the Medicine Ground Rounders podcast. This was amazingly informative and I feel much more equipped to consider 
diagnose, treat, and counsel patients with functional dyspepsia based on this expert discussion. Until next time, please enjoy this and future podcasts during your next Medicine Grand Rounders.